the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, March 16th, 2021. Jimmy Kimmel last night made a point I don't think he intended to make. He said it's hard to blame people for not wanting a vaccine when every piece of information they've received about COVID has contradicted every other piece. He was trying a joke that didn't work. It landed flat, but instead he did end up speaking to a great truth. We went, as we've played the audio, from a lot of advice to a lot of contradictory advice from the likes of the Surgeon General, Anthony Fauci, the CDC, you name it. All the scientists were supposed to listen to and respect. The most obvious one, but by no means the only one. No masks to masks to two masks. It's just one of many examples. Remember when we were worried about surface contact? Remember when we wiped down grocery bags, sometimes debating whether it's better to leave them outside in the sun before bringing them in? It was all just a year ago. Remember when a mask was more important than a vaccine, as the CDC director told us last year? Remember when we would not get a vaccine within a year, as Anthony Fauci said several times? When, remember when Anthony Fauci admitted to lying about herd immunity, something I thought would be or should be a firing offense? It was only three months ago when he said, quote, when polls said only about half of all Americans would take a vaccine, I was saying herd immunity would take 70 to 75 percent. Then when newer surveys said 60 percent or more would take it, I thought I can nudge this up a bit. So I went to 80, 85, close quote. He said he felt he could change the number because, quote, my gut feeling that the country is finally ready was finally ready to hear what I really think, close quote. Unbelievable, really, except too many are told we have to believe them. So anything he has said is supposed to be believable at any time. He says it just in that very moment, regardless of whether it contradicts what he said the weeks or months before, where he was saying something entirely 180 degrees different. Now the distancing is an issue. Please understand that I think every single thing is an issue. That not one thing, not one piece of advice or expertise from the government has been consistent or right. Even though too many citizens hang on to every word of Fauci's and the CDC with a martinet dedication and officiousness as if it comes from Mount Sinai or Mount Olympus. If I might quote Tucker Carlson from yesterday. So when they told us to stay far apart from each other last spring in the name of public health, it was an enormous sacrifice, whether or not we understood it at the time, because this was a trusting and law-abiding country. We obeyed that order. We barely grumbled about it. We assumed they knew best. Stay six feet from each other. That was social distancing. It was the law, and most of us followed the law. But where did that law come from? Who did the scientific research that determined six feet was the safest distance apart from other people that you could be? Somebody should have asked that question last spring, but as far as we know, nobody did. Fauci again and again promoted it. So do still all of our buildings, offices, stores, and indeed the CDC. Where did it come from? 
It came from a German scientist in the 1890s. But not even the World Health Organization bought it. They were, and today, tell us the right distance was and is three point. Excuse me. They, they told us it was 3.2 feet. That is to say one meter. Not in America. We had to double it based on zero science, or at least based on nothing more than the science from the time when William McKinley was president. Why do I mention McKinley? Well, that was the 1890s, and science was so advanced then, he said sarcastically, that no x-ray was used on McKinley after he was shot. So the bullet in him was not found. And of course, there were no antibiotics either. So he died. That's the level of an advancement of science we've been lectured on. Again, with great martinet officiousness to distance six feet. Again, some of us thought it was a crock, in part because not even the WHO was promoting it. Indeed, there were journals around over the past year saying six feet was not the necessary minimum, including the Lancet. And now we know even more so that is the case. Back to Tucker, if I might. Last week, the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases found that the law of six feet of social distancing isn't actually real. It's not a law. It was a guess, and it's wrong. Researchers looked at coronavirus case rates in Massachusetts school, district that, school districts that required six feet of social distancing and compared those with school districts that required only three feet of social distancing. Yes, there were some. Researchers found there was no statistically significant difference in coronavirus cases between the two. The study also controlled for coronavirus rates in the surrounding communities, and it was also true for adult staff members as well as children. It was not shoddy research. It was real. It was not a small sample. It was 537,336 students and 99,390 adults. Back to Tucker, because he's showing not only has the Mount Olympus science been wrong, indeed not science, but it's been political, and let us never forget it. Quote, last summer, dozens of public health experts exempt him, exempted BLM from coronavirus restrictions, not because science demanded that BLM get a pass, but because they personally supported BLM. The so-called scientific community signed a letter that will forever live in infamy, claiming, quote, the risks of congregating during a global pandemic shouldn't keep people from protesting racism. The scourge of white supremacy, the letter said, is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19, close quote. So you thought COVID-19 may have escaped from a lab in Wuhan that was in part funded by the U.S. government with the knowledge of Tony Fauci. So maybe Tony Fauci and the government of China might have something to answer for, answer for. But now we learn from the scientific community that it wasn't any of that at all. It was your racism that caused COVID. Well, that makes sense. Remember, the letter said the scourge of white supremacy is a lethal public issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19. The letter was signed by over 1,200 so-called medical experts. Or, back to Jimmy Kimmel, it's hard to blame people for not wanting a vaccine when every piece of information about COVID has contradicted every other piece. But follow the science. Turns out all they meant was follow the political science. It's just that not enough people understood that. 
This is a problem, of course, of value-free political science, which has infected the social sciences since the 1950s. It's known as the problem of the fact-value distinction. And we need not go into it in depth here, but it basically dismisses notions of right and wrong in our political science. As Harry Jaffa put it in his very first book in the early 1950s, it was his doctoral dissertation after uh, it was his doctoral dissertation, quote, all values are now just preferences and all preferences are essentially part of the realm of myth and outside the ambit of science. Thus, modern anthropology may deny the Nazis' assertions as to the inequality of the races by denying or criticizing any positive evidence that the Nazi scientists may bring forward in support of their doctrines. But the anthropologists, qua anthropologists, do not contest the right of the Nazis to be Nazis. They do not say that one ought not to be a Nazi and that the Nazis' treatment of their enemies is morally wrong. To the anthropologist... As to all value-free social science, the principles of national socialism are one of an unlimited number of possible sets of principles, all such principles having an equal right to being accepted and followed because there is no demonstrable or scientific basis for preferring one to the other. It's like cultural relativism, except now in the sciences. Joseph Mengele, Dr. Mengele, ironically enough or not, was, in fact, a trained anthropologist as well as a physician. And prior to becoming known as the Angel of Death, he was the recipient of the Iron Cross and known as, quote, mature, upright, reliable person who has the full confidence of his superiors and his subordinates. So when one goes back and looks at the past year, who was right, who was not, it's clear beyond peradventure the most prominent and pointed two scientists were not only wrong on a lot of advice, they also admitted to lying. And they dismissed that which those who placed different values, let us say, on our society and lives had to say. Issues of, say, mental health as well as physical. Issues of youth health as opposed to, say, obese and elderly health. Issues of, say, suicide and drug and alcohol addiction as opposed to, say, proving a sitting president incompetent. We were all the scourge, it turns out. Turns out, looking back over the year, though, the very first promise, prominent piece published questioning whether we were about to go through was smart. It was from Heather MacDonald, and it was published three days more than one year ago, exactly, March 13th, 2020. She took a lot of heat, as did those of us who promoted her essay. It was titled, Compared to What? The Misguided Response to COVID-19. There, she wrote, what actually matters is whether or not the growing pandemic overwhelms our ability to ensure the well-being of U.S. residents with efficiency and precision. But fear of the disease, and not the disease itself, has already spoiled that for us. For we are about to watch destruction being wrought on the U.S. and the global economy from this unbridled panic. She concluded her piece this way. Rather than indiscriminately shutting down public events and travel, we should target prevention where it is most needed, in nursing homes and hospitals. It's, this was exactly a year ago. It's hard to imagine that the panicked leaders and populace of today would have been able to triumph in the last century's world wars. America's colleges sent off thousands of their young men to fight and die in those wars. Those students went off with conviction and courage. Currently, Colleges and universities are shutting down with no hint of the virus in their vicinity. 
Would today's panicked leaders and populists be able to triumph in the face of a world war or some other legitimately comparable threat? Let's hope that we do not have to find out. I leave it there, but only with one last thought. When society tells you Dr. Seuss is bad for children, but Cardi B is not, are you happy with what all your social scientists have wrought? And when members of the scientific community tell you to change everything and keeps changing its mind on what needs to be changed, even contradicting previous changes along the way, even to the point of being demonstrably wrong as a matter of fact, even admitting they were deliberately misleading you, are you happy with what the mantra of follow the science has wrought? Science, political or physical, should not be value-free or a matter of ideological preference. You see what it leads to, or don't you, quite yet. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. I learned something valuable. A, a space heater, no matter how high you crank it, will not kick in if it's unplugged. And going back to first principles, I just thought that would be useful. Yeah. Or, gentlemen, this is a football. Listener Charles writes, it was called by radio host Dennis Prager the biggest mistake in history. Charlie Kirk repeated it as well. Not the worst decision, but the worst mistake. The mistake was the mandates, policies, and the hysteria surrounding the China virus. And it is a China virus. The virus is very real, and that was not what President Trump meant to say it was not when he called it a hoax. The hoax was how we all capitalized, politicized, and took advantage of the virus. For example, Jane Fonda said the COVID was God's gift to the left. Anyone remember that? Don't let a good crisis go to waste is perhaps the greatest ethic of our time handed down by Rahm Emanuel. Bill Maher said he hoped for a recession to remove Trump from office and saw it happen with a pandemic that shut down a robust economy. Charlie Kirk went on to say that we experienced in one single year, what we experienced in one single year did more to change our country than anything since World War II. We spent years guiding our kids to be active, to be outdoors, to go to school, to spend less time on screens, and in a single year wiped that out with lessons strictly delivered on Zoom. We spent years respecting our laws, our law enforcement officers, and our faith-based people of influence, and within a year taught ourselves that they were all evil. We made government our God and our God irrelevant. We based our entire lives on unproven methods. We took our advice from experts with limited experience and were told they were better, than, better judges of our lives than our own common sense and our own gut. Jesse Waters of Fox News said there are four pillars of the Democratic Party strategy. One, educational and social indoctrination, beginning in kindergarten. Two, Cancel culture, a new and more extreme metamorphism of political correctness. Three, illegal immigration to flood the zone. And four, elections changed with constitutionally observed practices of election procedures ignored under the name of election reform. It was all the promise of President Obama who famously said prior to his first election, we will fundamentally transform the United States of America. 
With the problems of the COVID pandemic falling on us during an election year, the forces of political change were emboldened with the best opportunity in decades to move forward aggressively. You could easily say for the first time in history since the Civil War, the Civil Rights era of the 1960s, as the COVID pandemic was winding down, a new dialogue was started, emphasizing the threat of something so often dormant in the past. That dialogue uses the term white supremacy or inaccurately another variation, white nationalism. But white supremacy is not what divides us. It's not black versus white, no more than it is rich versus poor, legal versus illegal, young versus old, liberal versus conservative, or any of that. We as a country suffer from radical leftist supremacy. At the root of much of what is going on and can be easily defined with another Dennis Prager quote, the left ruins everything it touches. And leftists come in all shapes and sizes. They are black. They are white. They are rich. They are poor. They are legal. They are illegal. They are young. They are old. But they are neither liberal nor conservative. Conservatives are not leftists, obviously, and far, far less of them are skinheads. The media would want you to believe. Liberals are not leftists in themselves, but liberals do enable leftists. Our conflict, our civil war of today, could be better described as the radical leftists against the rest of us. Who the leftists target are the rest of us. It's time we admit what is really happening and don't allow agenda-driven media talking heads from the left to tell you otherwise. Remember, buyer's remorse usually happens when our decision was uncertain to begin with. Fascinated by this point, which is why I spent some time reading this to you, because um, a lot of you were fascinated in what I said in the monologue on Friday, quoting Dr. Taleb, Nassim Taleb, that really only three or four percent of a committed people, a committed minority, may just be a big enough crank, a big enough Archimedean lever to change the world, to change majoritarian sentiment. This country, this Republican form of government, has been, from the beginning, consumed rightfully with the protection of minority rights. It takes majority right to protect minority rights. The question then becomes, who's protecting the majority so that down the line, majority right will continue to protect minority rights? rights. He has one of the biggest hearts in the community. He is John Dombrowski. He is the head of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website, and he hosts the Word on Wealth radio show every Saturday morning on this channel at the uh, Late hour of 7 a.m. I say late because you and I are early risers, aren't we, John? John, you're an early riser, aren't you? I certainly am. i got two little puppies that make sure of that. Yeah, of course. So what time are you up, usually? Well, let's see. It could be anywhere between 5 and 6 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Like clockwork, though. Not later than 6, right? Pretty much so, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, I know and that And I don't world. even need to set the alarm. I'm going to tell you a secret, John. Okay. They being puppies, be yeah. prepared for this to last another 13 to 15 years. Well, yeah, I the know. puppiness does the, not make yeah. it. Uh, you, what you are t- you are teaching them the behavior to expect. 
Well, they're teaching me. Okay. They're always teaching us. (laughs) All right. All right. I'm a good learner. That's our culture segment. Now let's do a little history segment. (laughs) History segment. Oh, it's a sad day on an anniversary of, uh, uh, you know, 2008, if we think back, Seth, right, of uh, when uh, we had the financial crisis. Right. And uh, there were a number of institutions that had some real challenges back then, and these Wall Street institutions, because we had things that we never heard of before, such as CMOs and CDOs and default swaps and uh, MBSs, mortgage-backed securities, all these different things, derivatives. We, we didn't know what any of these nope. things, you know, the average person didn't know what those were. Uh, but they found out, and they found out the hard way, And Bear Stearns, on this day back in 2008, which was a very uh, well-recognized name with a lot of prestige on Wall Street, and they were an investment bank firm, for 85 years they were in business. And it came to a screeching halt on March 16th in 2008. Uh, You know, it's funny that some of these places, we did learn a phrase, too big to fail. Yes. And it turned out not to be true in a lot of respects, right? Lehman Brothers did. Bear Stearns did. Earlier in the decade, right, we saw some other Enron, WorldCom. Yep, yep. Wasn't there some some accounting firms? I'm probably blanking on the names that we used to know. uh, The big, one of the big. Arthur Anderson, maybe. (laughs) Arthur Anderson, yes, right. And before that, E.F. Hutton. Do you remember how big E.F. Hutton was? Oh, Right? Quiet. Listen, right? E.F. Hutton, when E.F. Hutton speaks, right? And of what course, a great that, commercial right, that right? And then, of course, there were some airlines, Pan yep, Am, TW. Yep. But that phrase, too big to fail, was the justification realize, yeah. for the bailouts that we could yeah. not let certain things fail. And it created, right. in some respects, an artificial propping up. But on the other hand, this. it saved, I think, a lot of people because I never believed yeah. there was that big a distinction between Main Street and Wall Street, honestly, when you think about where Main Street has their retirements invested. Well, that's where their money is. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So, And then you see that was primarily a real estate packaging up yeah. of these real estate yeah. loans yeah. that yeah. were thought to be you know, AAA rated uh, loans, but in reality they were – Loans were being given to just about anybody if they had a mirror under their nose and they saw a little bit of, uh, you know, breathing going on. Uh, and we had uh, these loans were really uh, very uh, high-risk loans that were packaged with a lot of defaults in them. And that's what we saw. We saw a lot of these loans go bad, and it, one thing led to another, and lending stopped, came to a screeching halt. Speaking of lending, of course, the Fed chair. I was going to ask you, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We're th- thinking about this is all part of what we look at right. every day and what Wall Street looks at. We also look at the hot real estate market of today, and we think, my gosh, is it, this going to end the same way that it did back in 2008? And I think most people would agree that things are a lot different than they were, Seth. You know, we have a lot more regulation. We were in a deregulation period of time uh, with these financial regulations back then with lending practices. Yeah, and a big push to get home ownership into communities that yes, uh, yeah, that's right. Right. We that had, had been underserved. Community right. outreach mm-hmm. programs mm-hmm. that were trying to do that. So there were a lot of things that led to that. Um, and here we are today, though, with the real estate markets far exceeding where they were back then. But, you know, it just is what it is. I mean, the market today is, is hot because of low interest rates. Yep. It's a total different environment. Yep. But the Fed's going to be talking again tomorrow. That's right. I think Wall Street is really going to be intent on listening to what the Fed's going to say. Are they going to keep that same stance of low rates, 
uh, trying to, you know, control inflation and uh, continuing to get their purchases of, uh, of the um, bonds right now. And if that's going to be the case with the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, there's some out there that believe that's a real green light for the economy and the stock market right now. Nice. Thank you, John. Nicely you done. Bet. You bet. Yeah, tune into the Word on Wealth Saturday mornings at 7 a.m., the right old or right, right uh, early uh, time of 7 a.m. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Take Thanks care, so brother. Much, Thanks, John Dombrowski. Talk tomorrow. For everything. You bet. Thank you. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Renee is in Chandler. Hello, Renee. Hello, Seth. You probably hate that song, huh? Uh, you know, I didn't get introduced to that song until about three or four years ago. Is that right? <laughs> Honestly, you had never heard it? Uh, I may have as a kid, but again, it was never a... Uh... You know, something that comes on the radio. Too Isn't often. that funny? You know, I, I love music and names and stuff like that. Whenever I meet someone and it reminds me of a song using their name, I'll say you've either, and I know some obscure songs, I, I'll say, you know, you've either, this will either be the first time you've heard it or the millionth. And in your case, yeah. it's closer to the one. So that's interesting. But that is a very popular song. So that surprises me. I think that's one of the top rock and roll songs of all time or something. But anyway. Yeah. I'm yeah. Kind of more a talk radio and country guy. So. Oh, good for you. That's me too. Me too. <laughs> At least now. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of calling in about, uh, you know, a couple seconds ago when you talk about the, uh, the science and how people always argue against. You know, don't you believe in the science? And my rebuttal has always been, it's not the science that I have issues with, it's the data. Oh, that's because, interesting. Talk to me about that. So um, I'm kind of one of the decision makers here in, in Chandler, and it all comes down to how are the cases being reported, how are the deaths being reported, you know, and, and asking the deeper questions of the source and some of that metadata on when tests were taken, what is that threshold that it becomes a case or not? So as a, as an, as a, as a note on that, then during the summer leading into the big push to open up schools, I don't know if you recall this, but um, the Arizona Department of Health changed the way that we counted cases in that around, I think it was August time frame, that it wasn't just a viral infection count. At that point in August, they started adding adding in the antibody counts. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And so, as many antibody tests that were going on uh, in the state, they wound up getting piled on, basically on top of the virus counts. And that's why again we saw this massive jump. And net. And when I started asking the root of of, of why is this happening, what's changed, the answer basically weeks afterwards, they finally got basically asterisk commented of here's the caveat of oh now we're including antibody testing uh-huh. so they kind of move the goalposts uh-huh. to say and and that's another one that i find very interesting when when people say well we need to get back to our summer numbers are it's gonna be very difficult because it really depends on how many people do continue to do antibody tests 
because those are considered a new case as it is. Interesting. Now, tell me your your experience individually with it. Did you ever get COVID so far as you knew, or did you have antibodies or nope. anything? I have not. I have taken a couple of tests due to people close to me that have, and also because of travel. Um, recently went to Maryland and had to. And it turns out you never had it and don't have the antibodies, or you don't. I've you never don't. taken an antibody test. Oh, okay. I've only done the um, the. Viral test. I understand. Do you think you have the antibodies? Do you think you've had COVID and not known it? Because it turns out that's I, a sub. A, no that's idea. a larger. See, I think that's another part of this puzzle, uh, Renee. Another piece of this pie, I should say, maybe. But I think I think that a lot more people have had it asymptomatically than than public health officials like to talk about. Because I agree, hundred percent. Right, you agree, and and the reason I say that is. People like you who – I don't know the levels of your exposure. I can testify to uh, immense levels of exposure. I mean <laughs> – I mean as exposing I never as really? you can find and I never <laughs> had it, no. And um, and and it turns out when I run it by the, my physicians, they'll say, well, remember, it's possible 50 percent had it and didn't even know it, which makes Alex Berenson's point a little interesting. Just imagine a disease so horribly lethal – and dangerous to society that you don't even know when you have it. Well, and that's another depiction right in the beginning of this. Other people, if you remember, if it's highly contagious, it tends not to be deadly. Ebola, as an example, tends not to be very contagious because once those people get sick, they get quarantined and die. So they don't sit there and spread and walk around because, it, again, it's a very intense and deadly disease and uh, you know, infection. So, again, what tends to happen is the more deadly those viruses and, and diseases, the, the, the lower propensity they have to, to spread. Do you think there's ever going to be a reckoning or an accounting of what we did to ourselves here? I mean, the wake, the social <laughs> disaster, the social disaster that wow. is coming, it's already here. We just haven't come to grips awesome. with it in, in the numbers Agreed. of – of, of heightened suicides and drug relapses, highest so year on weird. level, high, highest year on record for drug overdoses, highest year. Um, suicides. Suicides. Double, yes, right, all of that. So we haven't come to grips with it. We're just beginning to um, get those numbers. The, unfortunately, these are the kinds of numbers that tend to lag anyway when you focus on other things and we're focused well, on other things. Here's the gotcha that I've been digging in with some of the, again, the, the people gathering this data and, um, again, I'll make two points on that. Sure. One, the decision makers can be manipulated into a decision based on the data provided. Hence why whatever comes out of the CDC, whatever comes out of your state and or county health, they those decision makers are those people that are gathering that data and how they depict it, just like everything else. It's not the science. It's where do you cut the data and the thresholds out? What do we make it say to get us to where we want making decisions so the decision makers are basically painted into a corner to say we have to shut down because the data tells us that and there's no way to argue against it the 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 second part of that is is when is that other shoe going to drop you know when is it i've inquired about some of the data gatherers on that and said okay we can't get that metadata we've asked for when are the tests being administered you know, is there a way to track the repetitiveness, right? How many times has a per- person that was viral positive checked, uh, taken the test? How many times has somebody that has an antibody positive, how many times have they taken the test? Those kinds of things. Is there metadata being gathered on this? Is there a way to track heat maps on really where, 
when a when a, a viral uh, testing center opens up in Goodyear, there's a hot spot. But then when it moves over to Chandler, <laughs> that hot spot moves with Chandler, and Goodyear winds up all of a sudden with low infection rates. Right, right. right. So where is this metadata? And <laughs> many of the people have come back and said they're not even trying to gather that data. So that way no one can go back months or years from now to say you made bad decisions based on new data. I think you're have. right. No, I think that's right because it wouldn't have been that hard or for that matter that expensive to have major cities engage in the kind of stuff that I think early on New York City and somewhere like maybe San Jose and L.A. did where they did these population-wide serologies. It wouldn't have been that hard. It just wouldn't have been. And we never did it to see how many people were actually carrying the antibodies or infection and didn't know it. Right. It would not have been that hard. But then again, that would have changed the narrative. Correct. And then not only till now are you seeing – you know, finally, people that are willing willing to kind of question, um, you know, those decisions and that data by going to the school districts now again, hearing tests and right. tests after right. new tests and right. new experiments going on that right. are proving that previous decisions were bad. They, so. they were all every decision. Find me one that was right. You want to hold? I got to take a break. I'd love to continue. Sure. Uh, yeah. Think about one thing that turned out to be right. One thing. One. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We're talking to Renee and Chandler, who's done a deep dive into data on the coronavirus, um, the COVID, uh, 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 COVID-19. And Renee, I, I, I poised this as we went to break. Name me one thing that the experts, quote unquote experts, said was right. Um, if you were the expert that everyone relied on and got two of the most massive things wrong, you'd have lost your job. For example, Anthony Fauci said in uh, late January, excuse me, late February, late February, he actually said there is no need to change your habits over the coronavirus. The following month, he went on national TV to discourage mask use. Those are two of the biggest. I mean, the first one is huge. The second one is maybe secondary in, 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 in effect. And yet we are told to keep listening to this man, that this man is the oracle. And I don't understand it. I mean, the more the more I dig into things he said that turned out to be wrong or that he changed his mind on, the more I'm saying, why weren't we all listening to Heather MacDonald and Dennis Prager? You know, the same month, Anthony Fauci said, you don't need to wear a mask and masks can in some cases do more harm than good. Is the same month Heather started publishing Essays about the dangers to society of going crazy over this thing. Mm-hmm. Why is Fauci to be listened to and Heather not? Heather turned out to be right and Fauci not. It's a weird thing yeah, about no. this world, isn't it? I agree. And, and there are, are things that, again, in general, I think people make decisions on that um, you know can evolve. But when they when they explain why and the reasoning behind it, 
that's where again they lose their credibility when you can't you when you say okay you know new new studies new science or whatever then then I can see an evolution but a lot of that those changes that again Dr. Fauci had presented it, it just it seemed again very whimsical he is again, an MD and a feeling he is the country's doctor for what it's worth if he were your individual yeah. doctor and you went to him and he got yeah. the original diagnosis wrong no need to change your behavior if he told you to do the wrong thing mask wearing and then later admitted to you that he was fibbing to you about what you had to do because he wasn't sure you would take him seriously not only would you have fired him as your individual doctor you would have reported him to the board of medical examiners i think i really don't have more to say than that but thank you renee Thank you, Seth. God bless you. I'm Seth Liebson. Stanley Kurtz, my gosh, you have no idea what's going on in our schools and in Congress trying to take over our schools. He'll tell you when we come right back.